0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, it was Alberta Premier Danielle Smith's first day on the job, and she was spinning fire taking aim at vaccine discrimination. Plus, a look ahead at the Public Order Emergency Commission. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to you all. This is another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show, Wednesday, October 12, 2022. Hope you are all having a wonderful week. Happy Hump Day to you all. It is a bit of an exciting day in Canadian politics. The release of Pierre Polyev's Shadow Cabinet. Okay, I don't know if that's actually exciting to you. Although, I will say that a lot of people are very chuffed by the fact that Lesley Lewis has secured a seat. She is going to be Pierre Polyev's infrastructure and communities critic, which shouldn't be all that surprising. She's a, a relatively prominent member of the Conservative caucus. She's a two-time Conservative leadership candidate. But I think a lot of people are fairly pessimistic, or at least were, after Aaron O'Toole shoved her to like the back of the bench I mean, she was basically in Gatineau. She was so far in the back benches. But uh, Pierre Poliev has acknowledged that she is a key member of the team. She's going to be in shadow cabinet. She'll actually be, if I am understanding correctly, squaring off in question period largely against uh, the uh, infrastructure minister, who is Dominic LeBlanc. She'll also have a few opportunities to perhaps question Justin Trudeau. So I think this will be something to watch. But we'll have lots more time for question period analysis in the week and months to come. I want to start off by talking about the inaugural press conference by the new Premier of Alberta, Danielle Smith. Now, let me just say... I used to be on 770 CHQR in Calgary, Danielle Smith's guest host. So anytime she was unable to discharge her duties as talk radio host, I was the fill-in. So I have a long enough history with Danielle Smith. But the real thing that I want to point out, I was thinking of this last night. I couldn't sleep, so I started thinking of all these different things. I wonder if, as Danielle Smith's guest host, which is technically an arrangement that I don't think has ever formally been severed, if I am acting premier of Alberta... Anytime Danielle Smith should find herself presently unable to discharge duties. If called upon, I will serve, although I don't think the lieutenant governor of Alberta will be calling on me anytime soon. But uh, technically, if I'm still going to be the guest host, I get to be acting premier. I don't make the rules. I'm a little rusty on the protocol, though. But uh, the people of Alberta, buckle in and get ready. But Danielle Smith was doing her debut press conference this week and she was taking questions on a number of issues. She was talking about the Sovereignty Act first and foremost, which I don't think the media is really going to want to let her off on. But it wasn't until the tail end of the press conference where she got a question about her plan, which I think is a very good one, to put vaccine status in the Alberta Human Rights Code so it would be illegal illegal under Alberta law to discriminate against people based on their vaccine status. Now, Danielle Smith has been a longtime libertarian. She is an advocate for individual choice. She has been, throughout the course of the pandemic, an incredibly strong voice, incredibly strong voice on vaccine choice. She was when she was on the radio. She has been in her work since, and she was during the campaign. She had a very clear position on this, a very clear proposal. She wasn't just saying, I'm against mandates. She was saying, I have a way that we can codify in law this opposition to mandates. And that was to put this human rights protection in place, which protects your right to be unvaccinated the same way as it protects your right to be free from discrimination as a racial minority based on your religion, your gender identity, your sexual orientation, and all of these other things. And she gave a very good answer which has gotten now millions of views online when asked about this i have a question about vaccine choice and how you want to protect that under the human rights act i'm wondering how um, a vaccine choice um, how you see that is equal to something like race gender sexuality which we protect because those are not about choices
1: well i guess the way i look at it is that the community that faced the most restrictions on their freedoms in the last year were those who made a choice not to be vaccinated. I don't think I've ever experienced a situation in my lifetime where a person was fired from their job or not allowed to watch their kids play hockey or not allowed to go visit a loved one in long-term care or hospital or not allowed to go get on a plane to either go across the country to see family or even travel across the border. So they have been the most discriminated against group that I've ever witnessed in my lifetime. That's a pretty extreme level of discrimination that we have seen. I don't take away any of the discrimination that I've seen in those other groups that you mentioned. But this has been an extraordinary time in the last uh, year in particular. And I want people to know that I find that unacceptable, that we are not going to create a segregated society on the basis of a, of a medical choice.
0: The part that has a lot of people on the left just exploding their own minds, spontaneously combusting, is Danielle Smith saying that the unvaccinated are the most discriminated against group she's ever seen in her lifetime. Now, I don't, and she was born in the early 70s. I don't know exactly how old she is. But nevertheless, she says that the unvaccinated in her lifetime are the most discriminated against group. And on the surface, this does not sound like an inherently illogical thing to say. In the last two years, certainly, the unvaccinated have been not just as a matter of discrimination and bigotry they experience in society, but as a matter of systemic government-imposed policy discrimination, barred from working in the civil service. They've lost their jobs. They were banned from taking planes. They were forced into quarantine, banned from trains. The amount of discrimination that has been heaped on the unvaccinated, not just by bigoted individuals, but by the state, is monumental. At the same time, I also don't want to get into this comparison game. When you make a comment like no one else has ever had that discrimination, which is not what she said, but when you make that comment that it's worse than anything else, people start throwing their own understandable grievances there. For example, in Danielle Smith's lifetime, there were still residential schools. In Danielle Smith's lifetime, a gay marriage did not exist with the force of law for much of it and so on. But I don't like the comparison for a number of reasons because I think all discrimination is wrong on its surface on an individual basis you don't need to compare and shouldn't need to compare one person's discrimination against another and it's doing that that always rubs me the wrong way because people try to delegitimize or minimize other people struggling because they think theirs is worse whereas I take an equal opportunity approach on this let's say that yes racial discrimination is bad so is vaccine discrimination The whole point of intersectionality, what we were told we're all supposed to move towards, is that we can't just look at these things in isolation, but I think we need to, in a lot of ways, call them out on individual terms and call them out individually when bad things are happening, when discrimination is taking place. And Danielle Smith, in the full context, in the full comment, does, by the way, say that she is not diminishing other discrimination that was raised in the question, such as racial and sexual orientation and so on. She's she's not talking about diminishing or downplaying that. She's just saying that we need to call out the horrendous discrimination that has been taking place on the grounds of vaccination status. And this is a discrimination for which the federal government in Canada has been unrepentant, for which provincial governments in this country have been unrepentant, and for which no one, in Canada, in Canadian politics, who holds elected office, has taken the view that Danielle Smith has just done, which is to say this is wrong and it will never happen, and to do so in a believable way. When she came out and said segregation would not exist in her province, Doug Ford said that in Ontario, that he would not support a segregated society. Danielle Smith's predecessor, Jason Kenney, had at one time taken it off the table. But Danielle Smith knows that history and premier smith i should say is well aware of that when she makes that commitment i think she understands the weight of what it is she's committing to and what is it what is what it is that she's promising and that is that there will not be a lockdown there will not be segregation and there will be protection of vaccine choice in alberta from here on out And there's a reason that that clip has gone so viral, not just across Alberta, not just across Canada, but around the world. I've got American friends, Australian friends, British friends that are sending me this, being like, who is this woman? Like One person's like, I don't know what Alberta is. I think it's a Canadian thing, but I'm all for it. And that, to me, is exceptional, because right now we are in the midst of a global trend where governments and countries can stand and look at the fork in the road and say we can choose freedom or we can choose not freedom. And most have been choosing not freedom. Most have been choosing to go so far away from this idea of individual freedom. In Australia, as Alexander Marshall, who's a a tremendous commentator and writer for The Spectator, pointed out, Australia even still... We're approaching three years since COVID was discovered, and nearly three years on, Australia is still in some parts committing to vaccine discrimination. Insane. And it's an island nation. The unvaccinated were—actually, I mean, the the entire country was basically an open-air prison in large uh, terms because of their inability to travel, to leave. But the unvaccinated are still— are still significantly discriminated against. Not, again, not incidentally, not peripherally, but as a matter of public policy. And this is unacceptable. And I said some weeks ago that there needs to be a reckoning. It's not just enough to lift or suspend restrictions. Governments need to be held to account. They need to be ousted. They need courts to slap them down. And we need politicians that are going to say on behalf of their provinces, their countries, their jurisdictions, that this is not something that we will stand for. And that is precisely what Danielle Smith did. But it it isn't just theoretical here. She's talking about changing the Human Rights Act. Fine. She's also talking about the why. And this is where I have to look at a bit of a global context right now. And you probably know the clip I'm going to in a few moments time from the European Parliament. But I want to set the stage because that clip from Danielle Smith, that initial minute I just played, there's another minute where she talks about more of the scientific basis of this. And this is where we actually need to go down the road of explaining a little bit about what the premise was. The premise of vaccine passports... The stated premise, the public one that the government acknowledged was that it was unsafe for the unvaccinated to congregate in a restaurant, in a sports venue, in a music venue, et cetera. It was unsafe to do that because the unvaccinated were going to transmit COVID and then they were going to get sick and then they were going to overwhelm the hospital system and then so and, so and so and so and so would happen and we would just have this collapse of society. So the premise of the vaccine passport was that you need to be vaccinated and ensure that all the people around you are vaccinated for certain spaces to be safe, whether they were airplanes or restaurants. That was the premise. Community spread needed to be stopped. Vaccination was going to do that. A lot of people got vaccinated not because they personally felt at risk of COVID, but because they wanted to save grandma. The titular grandma at the center of all our COVID policy, they got vaccinated to save her life not their own. And a lot of people bought into this idea. And I totally understand it. When everyone is saying that vaccines prevent transmission, that's typically been our understanding of a vaccine. I totally get that. So people get vaccinated because they want to stop transmission. We know that has been an absolute farce, especially in the Omicron era, the booster era. The vaccines are not stopping transmission. The benefit of the vaccine that's stated and promoted now is reduced to limiting your personal risk of hospitalization or death, which means it is the epitome of an individual choice. It affects no one else, whether you get vaccinated or you don't get vaccinated. So let's go back to where this comes from. So Danielle Smith says the following after that initial bit about uh, the vaccine discrimination she wants to end.
1: I think that there was a a lot of hope that the vaccine would offer a sterilizing immunity. And as a result, I think everybody was working very hard to get to a high level of vaccination. We've now seen that it mutates dramatically and we have to start treating it a lot more like influenza. Now influenza has about a one third of the population decides each year to protect themselves with vaccination i think we're right now at a level of booster shots of 39 percent of people deciding to protect themselves and i think that's the way we have to start talking once again about this particular type of vaccine is that vaccination really is for self-protection in this case because you have to make your own choice about what your own medical status is in conjunction with your own doctor and your own pre-existing medical conditions and we have to stop trying to victimize uh, a, a particular group because they have made a different choice so i know that that's going to be um a little challenging for for some people who hold a who've been holding a different view for a long period of time but if i need to make the point that this kind of discrimination is unacceptable the best way to do it is by changing the human rights act
0: she lays it out quite well it's a personal choice Let's turn to Brussels in the European Parliament where Dutch MEP, member of the European Parliament, Robert Roos was questioning an executive from Pfizer by the name Janine Small. And he asked if Pfizer had ever done any study on that exact premise, the one that we were told by all our government officials, that premise that vaccines prevent transmission.
1: Was the Pfizer COVID vaccine tested on stopping the transmission of the virus before it entered the market if not please say it clearly if yes are you willing to share the data with this committee and i really want a straight answer yes or no and i'm looking forward to it thank you very much um, regarding the question around um did we know about stopping humanization before um it's entered the market No. Uh, These, um, you know, we had to really move at the speed of science to really understand what is taking place in the market. And from that point of view, we had to do everything at risk.
0: Interesting. So, so, no, they didn't. Now, she uses the word immunization there, which I, is a misspeak, I believe. She, the question was about transmission. Her answer, we presume, is about transmission, unless this woman who lives in England doesn't actually understand English language very well, which uh, you never know. But she says it, it was never tested because they had to move at the speed of science. So the speed of science, I'm guessing that's very quick. So quick you can't study something. Now, okay, fine then why make that part of the pitch? Why make that part of the promise? Why tell people that it prevents transmission to make it a moral obligation and then a legal requirement to get vaccinated to protect other people if the vaccine doesn't protect other people? And, and this is as, as close to the smoking gun on this issue as we've gotten on transmission, when even Pfizer itself is saying we didn't really have a basis for the claim that it prevents transmission. That's the admission from Pfizer here, that we didn't really have a basis for that claim. So anytime it's been said, anytime government has said it, that wasn't coming in scientific terms. There was no following the science anytime someone was telling us that the vaccine prevented transmission. So the vaccine passport then comes down to what people were called conspiracy theorists what I was called a conspiracy theorist for saying in that it was about control and it was about coercion and the vaccine passport wasn't about reducing transmission by limiting the unvaccinated's presence it was about just keeping people home and making their life so miserable if they were unvaccinated that they got vaccinated because it was their only way to enjoy the full right to citizenship. Emmanuel Macron said the quiet part out loud about this when he said he wanted to émerder, to piss off the unvaccinated. He wanted it to be unpleasant to be an unvaccinated Frenchman or Frenchwoman so that you would get vaccinated because that was your way to enjoy life. Justin Trudeau never thought that it would be safer to travel on an airplane If only vaccinated people were on it, he just didn't want the unvaccinated to be able to enjoy the full rights of Canadian citizenship. Take a look at how he described this during the election. You deserve a government that's going to continue to say, get vaccinated. And you know what? If you don't want to get vaccinated, that's your choice. But don't think you can get on a plane or a train besides vaccinated people and put them at risk. Ah, yes, you technically have a right to be unvaccinated, but, oh, you don't have a right to get on a plane, you don't have a right to get on the train, you don't have a right to work, you don't have a right to be happy, to see your family members, to go on vacation. But, But sure, it's a choice. The vaccine passport was never a choice for people. People got vaccinated because it was their only way to put food on the table. That is not a choice consent is not something that can come under duress or come from coercion we've been told that in sexual context for years but in a vaccine context everyone's okay with coercion everyone's okay with just saying that we are uh, going to do this because we have to and say that's a choice and this should not depend, your perspective of this should not depend on your vaccination status. You should be able to be outraged about what governments did, whether you're vaccinated or not. You could have 4, five, six, 17 doses right now, and you should be able to accept that if that was a choice, fine, no one should be forced into that or coerced into that by the state. Because even if you want to break this down into philosophical terms and ethical terms, The only justification there ever could have been, and again, I do not believe that it justified vaccine mandates or vaccine passports, but the only justification there could ever have been is if the decision came down to the life and safety and well-being of others and not just your own. And that's so critical because, you know, even the most fire-breathing libertarians will say that your rights only extend up until the point where they infringe on others. That old line about how, you know, your right to extend your arm ends where your fist ends and someone else's face begins. So if vaccination protected your fist from hitting someone's face, to use the metaphor then there would at least have been an ethical debate about it. Again, I'm not saying that I would have landed on the mandate side, but that was the whole premise. Pfizer's own executive has now taken that premise off the table. Will there be any accountability from government? Will there be any transparency on this? I highly doubt it. And if you look at the media, the reporting of this, the reporting of this exchange in the European Parliament has been reduced only to these, you know, fringe minority alternative independent media outlets. I've not seen the mainstream media pick up about it, but I know that any minute now there will be the usual self-righteous fact checks on why anyone sharing this clip is, uh, you know, just a knuckle-dragging troglodyte and doesn't understand it and so on. Which is why I think so many people have been inspired and encouraged by what Alberta Premier Danielle Smith said, which is that this is an individual choice, that we will not stand as a society for this level of discrimination, especially when the discrimination has no basis in science, which is the one thing that could have been used as a trump card, which is, yes, we're discriminating, but the variance. Yes, we're discriminating, but the science. Yes, we're discriminating, but community spread and getting transmission down and all of that. Well, that is not what is happening here. Is not what is happening here. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Stay tuned. tuned in to the andrew lawton show welcome back to the andrew lawton show I spoke a little bit yesterday about the Emergencies Act uh, Commission hearings that are starting up tomorrow. They commence Thursday and run for, I think it's like six and a half, seven weeks. This is the Public Order Emergency Commission. I wanted to talk a little bit more about that because yesterday uh, morning, and I didn't read it on the show because I had recorded the show a bit earlier yesterday, the witness list was published by the Public Order Emergency Commission. So this is the uh, 65 anticipated witnesses that this They're going to call to testify as to all the things that happened in the course of the convoy and the emergencies act and invoking it and and all of that and i I wanted to talk a little bit about that list because i'm one of these people that's holding out a bit of romanticized perhaps idealized and yeah perhaps naive hope that we will find a semblance of truth in this commission and in the hearings and again maybe not in the findings Maybe we don't get the definitive ruling that it was wrong to invoke the Emergencies Act, but my hope is that we at least get through the testimony a level of truth that we haven't really been get from getting from government talking points. And I, I wanted to talk again about who these sixty-five people are. Blacklock's reported did a bit of number crudging here, but effectively one fifth, twenty percent of the federal cabinet appears on that witness list and if you look at it here uh, among those names are christopher freeland the finance minister and deputy prime minister dominic leblanc uh, david Lemeny the justice minister omar al gabra the transport minister prime minister justin trudeau bill blair as the emergency preparedness minister marco mendicino of public safety Anita Anand of National Defense. And then beyond that, you've got other bureaucrats from various departments. You've got Finance Canada bureaucrats and Global Affairs and the Privy Council Office. You've got RCMP, Ottawa Police, Canada Border Services Agency, Transport Canada, and all that jazz. But then you look at some of the municipal officials that are on there. And I find this to be quite interesting. Now, let me just say a couple of Ontario government people, Doug Ford not on the list. I find that interesting. I don't know the why. Because remember, Doug Ford was one of the ones that had actually come out and was far more sympathetic to Trudeau than, say, Scott Moe and Francois Legault and Jason Kenney were when it came to the Emergencies Act. Uh, But then you've got, uh, beyond the Ontario people, you've got the Coots mayor, Jim Willette. You've got the mayor of Windsor, Drew Dilkins. And a lot of people from the convoy that have not been able to tell their stories because of bail conditions, like Tamara Leach and Chris Barber. And then you've got other people that we have had on the show before, Uh, Benjamin Dichter and Tom Morazzo, Bridget Belton I've spoken to. Here's the interesting one, Patrick King. Now, this is where a lot of people's spidey senses started tingling because Pat King, as you may know, who also, again, has not been able to tell his story because of bail conditions and whatnot, and he was incarcerated for just months and months. But Pat King is on the list. Now, he was not in any meaningful way a convoy organizer. He was an early booster. He was someone that obviously was invested in the convoy and ingrained in the convoy. But why on earth is he one of 65 people that the Government of Canada's commission feels it can get a solid sense of the convoy from. And I don't know what went into crafting this list. I don't know who decided it. I mean, ultimately, it's the commissioner that was responsible. That's Justice Paul Rouleau for setting this out and, and sending out the invitations. But it does look like his presence on this list, Pat King, is to muddy the waters, and here's a guy that convoy organizers, and I, I talk about this in my book, convoy organizers were perpetually annoyed by because he kept inserting himself into situations. He kept trying to show up. He kept stealing, trying to steal the thunder and steal the spotlight and all of that. And I have no doubt that he'll do the same testifying before the Public Order Emergency Commission. And moreover, he will be, and it sounds like the government may want him to be, the guy in charge, the scapegoat, because he's the weak link. He's the one that they can use to, in their view, delegitimize the entire operation. And I think the only reason he's there, because he had no authority, he had no real command, he had uh, a sway over his own audience when that was about it. He wasn't connected to the money, he wasn't connected to the core group of leaders in any way that uh, involved him actually leading anything or controlling this thing. But he's there. And I think it's because the government wants to hold him up as being the ringleader behind this whole thing. And I'm calling it now, before these hearings even start, that's going to be the narrative they try to put forward. And the questions, they're just going to puff him up and elevate him and elevate him to such an extent where they can say that he was really the guy that held this thing together. And I don't know if that narrative is going to crumble under cross-examination simply because I don't know the format that they're going to have for these things. And that's why we tried to get a little bit of a sense of that and a bit of a a glimpse with Keith Wilson last week when we were talking to him. I'm also just beyond packing, interested in seeing what's going to happen with Peter slowly. Here's a guy who was, I'd say, defenestrated. He was forced to resign in the midst of this all and hasn't himself really been able to tell his story here. So that's going to be one that I am keeping an eye out for. Tom Marazzo pointed out, and I've had Tom on the show, he was uh, the army captain that did a lot of the logistical work behind the scenes of the convoy. He found it interesting, and I did as well, that the OPP and and Ottawa police liaisons that were on the ground every day talking to convoy organizers, that they haven't been called as witnesses. So the people that are there representing the OPP and the Ottawa Police and the RCMP, they're the brass, they're the leaders, not the people that were actually on the ground. Now, it's presumed, I suppose, if you want to take an optimistic view, that the brass have been briefed by the people on the ground. But if we're trying to get a full sense of what was happening, shouldn't we be hearing from the people that were themselves on the ground? And, And it genuinely looks like there is a filtering taking place where it's not about trying to get anyone and everyone that has facts to testify it's a curated list for example zexi lee who's the uh, ottawa public servant who's uh, filed the class action lawsuit against the convoy she's there okay if we're gonna have her let's have lots of other people let's have other individual truckers there So this is, to me, I find quite a fascinating turn, and and I'm not going to get conspiratorial just yet. There are a lot of people that think this is just a whitewash through and through, that there's not really going to be any sense of truth, that it's all just about trying to gloss over it. I'm going to withhold judgment on that because genuinely I want to see the line of questioning. I want to see how these testimonies actually uh, start unfolding. If you've got, and I I just want to do some math here, which I should have done ahead of time, but I'm not a math guy, so I, I don't do math often. But let's say we've got seven weeks, seven weeks at five days, that's 35 days. We've got 65 witnesses over 35 days. I don't know how many hours they're going to do of testimony every day. I imagine they'll do courtroom hours and they'll, you know, take breaks and take lunch breaks and whatever. But, you know, theoretically, they could do two witnesses a day, which means they get a couple of hours with every witness. Now, are they going to do, you know, 10 minutes with Pat King and four hours with Justin Trudeau? Or are they going to do like three days with some Finance Canada bureaucrat and five minutes with Justin Trudeau? Don't know yet. And, and again, I, I'm going to withhold judgment until this happens. But what I will say is that True North is going to have daily updates on this. We're going to be monitoring it all day every day we're going to have daily recaps we're going to do uh, video updates at various points as well i'm going to be in ottawa for bits and pieces of it my colleague elie kenson nantel is going to be in ottawa as well but they're supposed to be streaming the whole thing so if you want to just not get it filtered through our lens but want to see it for yourself you'll be able to and that link will supposedly be available to you uh, starting tomorrow, although there's been a uh, it's been the information from the commission has so far been a little bit scant and delayed. And And remember, these things were supposed to have started about four weeks ago, but the commissioner had a, a medical emergency. So they were bumped back to now. So they're starting tomorrow. The Public Order Emergency Commission is upon us. And True North is going to have you covered as we go through this process in the next little while. So that's going to be something to keep an eye out for. And we'll talk about that on the show next week as well. And also, Fake News Friday is coming up in just a couple of days. So I'll be back with Harrison Faulkner on that. You won't want to miss it. If you do want to support the work that True North is doing, please head on over to donate.tnc.news, donate.tnc.news. And that does it for me for today. We'll be back soon enough with more of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.